We all know that I love making and recording my own podcast. Loudmouth is my heart and soul. But what's even more fun is that it's easy to do. And guess what? (laughs) You can do one too. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Because it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your own podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. You can make money from it with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast right there in one place for free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Loudmouth Podcast. I'm your host, the one and only host of Loudmouth, Madison Hadler here. Happy Wednesday, everyone. I hope that you are doing great. Um, So recently, I went to go get a library card because if you don't know, I moved to Kansas City just in January. I guess that was a little while ago. Oh, my gosh. July, Madison. Yeah, that was a little while ago. But... I went to go get a library card because I absolutely love the library. I don't know why. It's just something like in high school, I used to go with my friend Megan to the library during finals week. We would get Chipotle and we would sit there and study forever. And when I was younger, like I would always be a part of the reading clubs. Um, I don't know if you guys ever remember this, but the, I think it was Pizza Hut used to have those reading clubs like if you read this many books you could get a free pizza or whatever um yeah my brother and I dominated that and would always do that because there was a pizza hut right across from our old school so our mom would take us there afterwards it was amazing but anyway I love the library it brings me so much joy I just love being able to check out books and I really do like to read I don't make a lot of time for it a lot of the time but I do love to read and everything and especially a library just having so many books Blah, blah, blah. Wow, Madison, just do a whole episode on how much you love the library. But at the library, I got a book. What? I know, a book at the library. But I got The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. And I feel like I'm a little tardy to the party on this one because everyone was reading it a little bit ago and it was very popular when it came out. Um, But I just was a little bit behind on reading it. And let me tell you guys, there is a reason why this book is so popular and so well known because it is such a thorough examination of the war on drugs and mass incarceration and how it has shaped U.S. policy for years and years now and how it has just, how it subtly, subtly, subtly made racism legal basically and how it just absolutely affected everything that we know about racism and about mass incarceration today. So today's episode is a little bit inspired by this book but also with the recent 
Olympic ban of Shakari Richardson because marijuana use and everything like that. The war on drugs has just been high and mighty in my mind and I've always wanted to do an episode on it but there is just so much and I'm gonna tell you right now this strictly is a kind of overview of the history of the war on drugs and I want to do more deep dive episodes into how the war on drugs has affected the fourth amendment how the war on drugs has made mass incarceration another racial caste system and things like that. So there will be many more episodes on this. So I just want to preface by saying this is not an end-all be-all ex- explanation of the war on drugs. But it is a start. It is a good place for people who don't necessarily know what the war on drugs means or what it is or the impact of it. So if you don't know much about the war on drugs, buckle in because you are probably going to learn a lot and it's probably going to make you just hate America even more than you already do. And yes, FBI, you can come and get me. I don't give a fuck Um, because we need to nut up against our goddamn government. So here is the war on drugs. of the world's population, the United States now holds 25% of the world's prisoners, winning the world's leading jailer. We are incarcerating African-American men at a rate approximately four times the rate of incarcerated black men in South Africa under the apartheid. Almost two million people fill the prisons and jails of the United States. But why? It all goes back to the war on drugs. The rhetoric of law and order was first mobilized in the 1950s by Southern governors and law enforcement officials in an attempt to generate and mobilize white opposition to the civil rights movement. For more than a decade, the conservatives strategically linked the opposition to a law and order and made philosophies, even MLK Jr.'s civil disobedience philosophy, a leading cause of crime. During this time, crime did rise, and although the FBI and government tried to link it to the civil rights movement, it was around this time that the baby boomers were becoming teens, creating an increase. Politicians on both sides started to adapt this law and order phrase in order to try and appeal to voters, but Nixon really, really capitalized off of this. And I want you to keep this in mind, that both sides started to adopt it, because that comes back into play. But Nixon devoted 17 speeches to this topic and centralized all his ads to stopping the violence. And although you might think it had all to do with crime, or maybe you don't because you know America is fucked up, but these people exclusively worked on pitting whites against blacks, especially poor whites. And this isn't a new tactic, by the way. This was used when slavery was first becoming of the U.S. society focused on indentured servitude for whites, which was quote-unquote better than slavery, and tried to make them believe that they were still better than African Americans. Michelle Alexander talks about this in The New Jim Crow. They did this to win votes in the trust of low-income whites, even though the parties that were convincing them had no actual care about them, just a hatred towards black people. Thomas and Mary Edstall, who wrote 
who wrote Chain Reactions, stated, The pitting of whites and blacks at the low end of the income distribution against each other intensified the view among many white that the condition of life for the disadvantaged, particularly black people, is the responsibility of those afflicted and not the responsibility of the larger society. Throughout this time, the conservative revol revolution was supportive, quote-unquote, of the civil rights movement in talk, but resisted any advancement in laws. They raised the issue of welfare, subtly framing it as a disconnect between hardworking blue-collar whites and poor blacks who refused to work. On July 14, 1969, President Richard Nixon identifies the drug abuse as a serious national threat, and Nixon calls for a national anti-drug policy at the state and federal level. And then, in June of 1971, Nixon officially declares a war on drugs, identifying drug abuse as public enemy number one. This was largely rhetorical because when he announced this, he had no actual proposals on how to fix the problem. No consensus had been reached on what would stop the U.S. from becoming consumed by the pr drug problem, just that there was one and they were going to fix it. In July of 1973, so two years after he declares this war on drugs, Nixon creates the Drug Enforcement, Enforcement Administration to coordinate the efforts of all other agencies. Then Reagan came onto the scene. As Alexander says in her book, Reagan mastered the exclusion of the language of race from conservative public discourse. He condemned wel welfare queens and criminal predators and his colorblind Rhetoric on crime, welfare, taxes, and states' rights was clearly understood by the white and black voters as having a racial dimension. Though claims like that were impossible to prove because of his coded language. Once he was elected, Reagan swore to enhance the government's role in fighting crime. In October of 1982, Reagan officially announced his administration's war on drugs which is the ever-prevalent war on drugs that we know today. Nixon obviously kind of started it, but Reagan was the one who really pushed it into the scene. But when he declared this war on drugs, less than 2% of the public viewed drugs as the most important issue facing the nation. But as we all know, it wasn't about the drugs. It was about the public concerns on race. After this announcement, the budgets of federal law enforcement agencies soared. Between 1980 and 1984, FBI anti-drug funding increased from $8 million to $95 million. Department of Defense's anti-drug allocations increased from $33 million to $1,042 million. And the DEA anti-drug spending grew from $86 million to 1,426 million. And FBI allegations grew from 38 million to $181 million. On the other side of the spectrum, organizations and agencies that help drug treatment, drug prevention, and education were dramatically reduced. Funny how that works, right? Because there was no real want or need for this war on drugs, the Reagan administration knew that they needed to garner support for it. So they went into a media frenzy. They wanted to ensure that the budget would continue the expansion of the federal government's law enforcement activities long after they were gone. 
So they threw themselves and threw the war on drugs into the media and into everyone's faces, creating a public problem of it that wasn't there in the first place. The campaign's main goal was to emphasize the rise of crack cocaine in inner city neighborhoods, communities that were already suffering with unemployment and de-industrialization. This was because of globalization and increase in technology. In as late as 1970s, more than 70% of all black people working in a metropolitan area held blue-collar jobs. But by 1987, the industrial employment plummeted to 28%. The decline in employment opportunities increased the incentive to sell drugs, especially crack cocaine, which had just rose to popularity in 1985, just a few years after the drug war was announced. Again, funny how that works, right? Like Alexander says, we shouldn't diminish the harm that crack caused, but we should look at how the nation responded to this. Countries like Portugal responded to their drug problems by redirecting money to drug treatment and prevention. And 10 years later, they reported drug use and addiction had plummeted, along with drug-related crimes. But instead of putting our money into helping and fixing and educating the public on these problems that technically weren't really even of high demand at this time, we instead villainized it. As soon as crack appeared, the Reagan administration jumped to villainize the people who used it, especially. In 1985, the DEA made Robert Stutman the director of the New York City office, where they made his goal to ramp up public support of the drug war by drawing journalists' attention to the spread of crack cocaine in inner-city communities. Which, of course, worked out well for them. Articles started telling stories of black quote-unquote, crack whores and crack babies and gangbangers, which worked perfectly with the already creative image of welfare queens. In 1989, the media continued to write claims that crack was an epidemic and a plague and that it was instantly addictive, which have now been proven false or strongly misleading. Between October 1988 and October 1989, the Washington Post ran alone, just the Washington Post, ran 1,565 stories about the drug. In 1986, with the media's help, the House passed legislation that allocated $2 billion to the anti-drug crusade. It required the participation of military and narcotics control efforts, allowed the death penalty for some drug-related crimes, and authorized the admission of some illegal obtained evidence in drug trials. Can you believe that in these drug trials, it was technically legal for people to put illegally obtained evidence in in them and not even have a problem with it? It also included mandatory minimum sentences for the distribution of cocaine, including more harsh punishment for the distribution of crack associated with black people than powder cocaine, which were associated with white people. Although there were some voices who recognized the danger of this craze, their voices were shut down by the loud rave of the scare. The war on drugs was used to blame drugs for everything instead of poor school systems or bad welfare programs and increasingly downtrodden neighborhoods. The Republican Party especially used used drugs as a scapegoat to not put the blame on them for all these problems that were occurring in the U.S., Congress went back and revised 
revised the drug policy in 1988 and extended far beyond traditional criminal punishments and included new civil penalties for drug offenders. This new anti-drug abuse act authorized public housing to evict any tenant who allows any form of drug-related criminal activity to occur on or near public housing premises and eliminated many federal benefits for any convicted of a drug offense, including student loans. It also expanded the use of the death penalty for serious drug-related offenses and imposed new mandatory minimums for drug offenses, even with no evidence of intent to sell. It could even apply to first-time offenders. So imagine you get caught with an illegal drug the first time that you were ever thinking about using it or even just had it in your possession. You were now subjected to a minimum sentencing, no matter what, even if it was your first time ever using it or even if it wasn't yours. If you were caught with it, you immediately went to the mandatory minimum sentencing. Until this, only one year of imprisonment had been the max of possession for any amount of drug. The war on drug was popular among key white voters, especially those who hated to see the black progress that was gained in the civil rights era. Beginning in the 1970s, researchers found that racial attitudes were an important determinant of white support for law and order and anti-welfare measures. The war on drugs offered Basically, a free pass to be racist without being charged of racism. And boy, oh boy, was this utilized by conservative politicians, even Democratic policies, politicians. This was a way to pin and pinpoint the cause of violence, crime, drug abuse to African-American and Latino and underrepresented communities without actually saying, oh, it's the black people causing this. It was a way to disenfranchise them without actually being called a racist or being seen in that negative light. And it didn't stop there. President George Bush Sr. only continued in Reagan's steps. He learned that subtle negative references to race could mobilize poor whites who were once loyal to the Democratic Party. He opposed affirmative action and ran a controversial ad that got plenty of airtime which was called the Willie Horton ad. This ad featured a dark-skinned black man who was convicted murderer that escaped while on a work for low and raped and murdered a white woman in her home. The ad blamed his opponent, Michael Dukakis, for the death of the white woman because he had approved the furlough program. This ad was very, very, very effective and destroyed Dukakis's chance of ever becoming president. In 1989, Bush characterized drug use as the most pressing problem facing the nation. The New York Times reported that 64% of those polled now thought that drugs were the most significant problem in the U.S. This rise in public concern didn't correspond to a dramatic shift in illegal drug activity, as you could probably guess, but it was the product of the political campaigns and media frenzy with the war on drugs. At first, this was a conservative issue, but by the late 1980s, Democratic politicians and policymakers were attempting to gain control of the drug and crime issues from the Republicans, just as we saw in the 1950s with the law and order rhetoric. 
And the comparison doesn't even stop there. It was just like before in the Jim Crow era, former allies of African-Americans adopted a political strategy that required them to prove how tough they could be. And even more so, this is just like the women's suffragette movement when white women, as soon as they got the right to vote, ignored their black allies who had helped them get there and just continued on their merry little way. As the law enforcement budgets increased, so did prison and jail populations. In 1991, one-fourth of young American, African-American men were now under the control of the criminal justice system. And just like that, 1992 came around and Bill Clinton vowed that he would be the toughest on crime, even saying, I can be nicked a lot, but no one can say I am soft on crime. And he proved himself to be true. Clinton endorsed the three strikes and you're out publicly in front of everyone in his State of the Union address and signed a $30 billion crime bill, which increased dozens of new federal capital crimes, mandated life sentences for some three-time offenders, and authorized more than $16 billion for state prison grants and expansion of police forces. The Clinton administration resulted in the largest increase of federal and state prison inmates of any president in American history. A Democratic president, remind you. But he didn't stop there. He took the welfare problem under his wing and more than any other president before, created the current racial undercast. Clinton signed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, which ended welfare as we know it replacing aid to families with dependent children with a block grant to state called states called temporary assistance to needed families. This imposed a five-year lifetime limit on welfare assistance and a permanent lifetime ban on eligibility for welfare and food stamps to anyone convicted of a felony drug offense, including weed. Clinton created a massive reallocation of public resources and made it easier for federally assisted public housing projects to exclude anyone with a criminal history, a.k.a. the one strike and you're out, which was before three strikes and you're out. More than two million people found themselves behind bars at the turn of the 21st century. 90% of those admitted for drug offenses were black or Latino. The war on drugs wasn't for the mass public. It was an easier, swallow, easier to swallow way of being racist. Nationwide, some of the most egregious cases of racial disparities can be seen in the case of black and Latina people. Higher arrest and incarceration rates for these communities are not reflective of increased prevalence of drug use, but rather the law enforcement's focus on urban areas, lower income communities, and communities in color of color that was started in the war on drugs era. Punishment for a drug law violation is not only meted out by the criminal legal system, but is also perpetuated by policies denying child custody, voting rights, employment, business loans, licensing, student aid, public housing, and other public assistance programs to people with criminal convictions. These exclusions make a permanent second-class status for millions of Americans. Like drug war enforcement itself, they only fall disproportionately on people of color. 
one in 13 black people of voting age are denied the right of, to vote because of laws that disenfranchise people with felony convictions. One in nine black children has an incarcerated parent compared to one in 28 Latino children and one in 57 white children. Today, 13% of all African-American men, 1.4 million, are disenfranchised in the United States. Research shows that prosecutors are twice as likely to pursue a mandatory minimum sentence for black people as for white people charged with the same offense. Among people who received a mandatory minimum sentence in 2011, so a couple years ago, 38% were Latino and 31% were black. And although this was only a brief, brief history on the war of drugs, we can just from this, you can see how this war was only perpetuated in racist remarks and paved way because of racist ideologies that were already placed in white people's heads. White supremacy is a mass, mass evil, and it hurts and kills millions of families each year. Maybe not directly and maybe not outwardly, but as we can see, the war on drugs was a pretty fucking racist thing to happen. And I have more statistics and more things to note for you all, but I don't want to overwhelm you guys with it all right now because just understanding the war on drugs is a good lead way into how this affects black and brown communities every single day. So I know this was a little bit deeper of an episode and a little bit harder to swallow pill, but especially for my white friends, please, please, please do your research on the war on drugs. Please understand that these ideas that we have been placed in our heads and these ideas that these inner city communities are sad or dirty or disgusting were started by the war, was started by the war on drugs and was started by this law and order idea. And although they never quite literally said black people, it's very prominent in the statistics and the rhetoric around it that that's who they were targeting. So I hope my white friends listening to this can understand a little bit deeper on how the war on drugs has just made it easier to disenfranchise black and brown communities and easier to make them the villains of this and to make them seem like the problem children of America. But instead, help us to see that we as white people are the ultimate evil. We have created this rhetoric out of nothing and just because they hated to see black people winning. They hated to see the civil rights movement pave way. And it's gone from slavery to the Jim Crow era to mass incarceration. And so I highly, highly recommend you guys read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. It is a deep book, but it's so statistically heavy. She ha put in her research and piles so many great statistics and I have so much more to share with you guys about the war on drugs, including how it has fucked up the Fourth Amendment, how the FBI has literally poured millions on millions into training police how to keep people at law, at minor tra traffic violation stops just to get them on a drug offense, and how they started seizing homes and making property a part of the drug war and giving money back to the police institutions. So that's my rant for today. I hope that you guys learned a little bit of something about 
the war on drugs. And I hope this helped you kind of understand why, especially why the Olympics banning Shikari has truly just rocked and just implemented, implemented, emphasized, (laughs) there we go, emphasized how black people are quite literally so much more disenfranchised and picked out of the crowd than white people. So, yes, if you guys want me to talk more on it, I will with or without your consent. You don't have to listen to it if you don't want to. But I want to get into this a little bit more and teach you guys more of the things that I've learned from this book that I truly didn't even know before. Um, Because I think it's important to spread this information. It's important to understand why our racist ideologies around drugs are kept intact today and why the war on drugs still has such a prevalent problem and why the war on drugs wasn't even a war on drugs. It was a war on black and brown people. So I love you guys very, very much. And I'm going to put some um, links down in the bio of where I got a lot of this information and also a link to um, the new Jim Crow so that you guys can purchase it for yourself and listen. I'm also going to include some nonprofit organizations that are actively working on trying to um, decrease the emphasis of the war on drugs in communities today and trying to actively help um, those who were incarcerated on little drug offenses. Because it's also important to note that drug is nearly legal in all of America. And yet these people that are behind bars are almost, I'm pretty sure it's 80% today, like in 2021, 80% are behind because of drug offenses. And a lot of them by minor drug offenses offenses including weed and yeah okay (laughs) I'm gonna stop it there because I will just go on and on about the problems of this but I hope that you guys enjoyed please make sure you check out the links down below do some research for yourself and also follow me on Instagram at loudmouthpod ask me any questions that you have I may not know exactly the answer but I can definitely lead you to one and figure it out with you Um, you can follow me on Twitter at loudmouth underscore pod and get my merch, Teespring, um, Loudmouth Pod. I'll have it all linked in the bio for you or in the show notes for you guys. Um, and I will talk to you all next Wednesday. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Um, and share the knowledge of the war on drugs, please, because I think it's important. I don't think it's important. I know it's important to get this out into the world and have everybody understand that it's racist and our government fucking sucks. Okay. I love you guys very much. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.